Diedrich Bonhoeffer is remembered by many because of his heroic stand against the evils of the Nazi regime in Germany. As a budding biblical scholar in Germany, he was often an outspoken opponent to Adolf Hitler. There came a point in his life that he needed to flee the persecution that had increased under Hitler's reign. But after some years of living in exile here in America... Bonhoeffer would return to Germany to lead an underground seminary. It was during these days that he learned the importance of the need for other Christians. Living together with other faithful men helped him to endure these difficult and excruciating times of persecution. Persecution which ultimately led to his arrest and execution. In his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer recounted his experiences and really discovered the secret of Christian community. In it, he writes, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. And that also clarified the goal of all Christian community. That they meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. I wonder this morning as you think about Christianity, you think about your own individual walk with Christ Do you need others to help you follow Jesus? Do you need what Bonhoeffer describes here as bringers of the message of salvation? This morning we want to consider in God's word that he is our provider. But often that can be an abstract idea. God provides. That's very abstract. He provides many things. The Bible tells us that God provides for the just and the unjust. God provides rain and food. God is said to be the one who provides life and the one who ends life through death. If God then gives gifts to good and bad, wicked and righteous... What is it that God provides His people specifically? This morning in 1 Samuel, we see the Lord's provisions, and really specific provisions. And before we jump in there, I just want to give us a a bit of a context of where we're at. Uh, We are in a period of, of King David's life known as the exile period. Uh, the, The period in which David lived in exile from the people. David represented the people as the king, and in this period, because of the sin of King Saul and the sins of the other uh, Israelites, David was exiled from his people. He was not able to lead and be the king that God had anointed him to be. David has been on the run for many months now, running from the insane King Saul as he seeks to take his life. You remember that Saul was rejected for being king over Israel, because he had a fundamental problem. 
And it was Saul. You see, Saul was so impressed with himself, so confident in his own abilities, that he had no need for God and His Word. He had no need for priests to mediate for him. This is why he was so quick just a few chapters uh, ago in, in chapter 20 to annihilate the entire city of priests, the entire priesthood removed. Saul could do that so quickly because he had no need to access God. For he was sufficient in and of himself to rule and to lead God's people. In other words... Because Saul had rejected to listen to God, God had stopped speaking to Saul. In a few weeks, we'll see that really deplorable and sad picture when Saul is calling God, he keeps phoning him in heaven, and God doesn't take the call. And Saul is left with no choice but to go to a witch and to have this witch bring Samuel from the dead. It's truly a sad state, and in the midst of it, we find King David rising up, week in and week out. I hope you'll see David rising to be the king that God's people needed. And I want to be clear uh, that King David was not perfect. King David is not Jesus, but he sure does reflect why we need Jesus. He points us to Jesus, And so when you're reading through this, and particularly in the days ahead, you'll find David doing some foolish things. You'll find David's faith waning at times. You'll find David taking and really manifesting his problem. See, David had a problem too, and he had a a woman problem. He thought that he needed to have as many wives as he could gather. His son will inherit this same problem uh, when Solomon will begin to have multiple wives as well. This will be, as you'll know, a stumbling block for David in his kingship. But nonetheless, God is working through an imperfect person to display his perfect purposes for his people. And so let's turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. And my hope is in the next few weeks as we wrap this book up, and you may be celebrating that truth, or, or maybe wanting more, I don't know, but I hope to just look at a chapter a week, and, and I, will, I would just say this, I encourage you to read ahead. Um, I remember uh, Brother Bill here, he, he's always telling me, man, Pastor, what's next week's sermon? And Just so you know, it's in the back of the bulletin, you'll find next week's text, and so add that to your Bible reading. So if you're, re- yeah, I hope you're doing it, uh, you're reading through the Bible right now, add 1 Samuel 24 to that reading list this week and begin reading ahead and so that your mind is prepared with the questions of the text. Well, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 23 today, uh, beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keliah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keliah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keliah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keliah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keliah, 
and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keliah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keliah, he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keliah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Keliah and besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keliah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keliah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keliah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six hundred, arose and departed from Keliah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keliah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Achilah, which is in Jeshimon? Now come, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they rose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah, in the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. David was told. So he went down the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that he pursued, excuse me, and when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul... And his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. As they were, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went after the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the stronghold of Engedi. What is the point of this chapter? 
in David's life? Does this mean for us together as God's people today? We could summarize it in this way. Throughout every season of life, the Lord's providence offers comfort to God's people. Chapter 23 is meant to comfort us, to encourage us, to see that God's providence, the provisions that the Lord has given His people, are given not only to help us, to deliver us, but so that we would find comfort in the Lord's provisions. So my prayer this morning for us all is that as we consider God's Word, that we would be comforted, that we would be encouraged by the provisions that God has given us. And our text highlights three provisions the Lord gives His people. These provisions are found not only here in Samuel, 1 Samuel 23, but found throughout the Scriptures. We see the first provision is that the Lord provides His Word. The Lord provides His Word. Secondly, in the text we see the Lord provides His people. He provides other believers. Third and finally, we see the Lord provides Himself. He provides Himself. Well, let's look at these three provisions in the text this morning. First, the Lord provides His Word. The Lord provides His Word. We are told that David who is on the run from the insane king Saul after he has slaughtered the the priest at Nob in the chapter above in chapter 22. And Elimelech has, uh, so Abiathar, Elimelech's son, has fled to David in Keliah. That word has been given that these this people there in Keliah. Now Keliah was not far from where David was was hiding out, only a few miles away. These would have been people who would have been defenseless, though we are told they have bars and gates. The Philistines come against. Now, what you want to note in the text is how does David respond with whether or not he should go to battle. Look with, look with me in the text. Notice, as he receives the, the word in verse 1 that the Philistines are going against this defenseless city, notice how David responds in verse 2. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. His instinct was to go to God. His instinct wasn't to just run down there and save the people, though that would have been a noble You see here David's dependence on the Lord. Unlike King Saul, who is dependent only upon his own wisdom and and that of those around him, here we see David's instinct is to go to God. And God kindly provides him his word. Now one of the things we want to be careful as Christians and as God's people is to think we are entitled to God's Word. Nowhere in the Bible does God present His Word as anything but grace and mercy. God's Word, in other words, God could have remained silent. He could have judged in a declaration to Adam and Eve and just shut off the spigot of His words. 
But his words are meant to be a provision. To provide a revelation of not only who he is, but who we are. And as you'll see in the text, to do one particular thing, which is to comfort our fears. God provides his word to David to comfort his fears. We're told here in verse 3 that upon um, David receiving the, the positive word from the Lord that they are to go down and save Keliah, his men are afraid. Look, we are afraid here in the wilderness. How much more if we get back in the territory of Israel, get back into Judah closer to wicked King Saul? Look, I'm freaked out being out here in the middle of nowhere. It's one thing to be at the king's back door. But the Lord in his providence provides a sure word. In verse 4 he says again, go, arise, I will give them into your hand. In other words, the word of the Lord to David and his men, what comforted them wasn't merely the fact that God was talking to them. That, I'm sure, brought some comfort. But that was the word of salvation. I A word of promise. Look at verse 4. I will give the Philistines into your hands. In other words, God promises to deliver them. God promises to give them victory. And so God's word is given to his people to comfort our fears. So this morning, if you are afraid, if there is fear in you, so perhaps you're afraid of your financial insecurity. Maybe you're afraid of your own life. You're afraid of your health. You're afraid of whatever. At some point in your life, you've been afraid. Maybe today you're afraid something is insecure. Maybe it's your age. You're, you're thinking, I just don't know if tomorrow is actually going to come. What do you turn to to comfort that fear? Do you not see that God has provided His Word to comfort our fears? To remind us of His promises? That he is faithful to his word. God gives his word to comfort our fears. Well, as David goes down, we are told that they do have victory. That God's word is true and trustworthy. And God promised and God fulfilled that promise to David. And they have victory. Well, in verses 6 through 14, if you turn over there now, you'll see that God provides his word yet again. This time, though, God provides his word to conform David to his will. To conform him to his will. David is delivered, Keliah. We're told that Abiathar meets him there. And he has the ephod in his hand. The ephod was a vest that uh, you'll remember God instructed Moses to craft and to create. And this ephod was worn by the priest as he would go and stand before 
the people of Israel and cry out to God on their behalf. On the ephod was written the names of the tribes of Israel. In other words, that priest was a representation of the people and it was through the ephod that God would bring revelation to his to his people. And so notice again, David is in trouble. He is now, as we're told in the text, in a city that has gates and bars. He has, he's been trapped. He is in a city where he cannot get out. He cannot escape. Word comes to him. Saul is on his way. You have to get out now. And so David's instinct is to do what? To say, should I follow my own wisdom? Should I be reacting to my fears? Or should I go to the Lord? Should I seek the word of the Lord? Well, what is God's will for me? Should I stay in the city or should I flee? And so through a series of questions, David asked, Lord, should I stay in the city? You'll notice here in verse 9, verse, excuse me, verse 10. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keliah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keliah surrender me into your into his hands? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? David receives the word in the end of verse 11 that he will come down. He, in, he inquires again in verse 12, will the men of Keliah surrender me? So, so it's one thing for Saul to come and to attack the city. Are the people going to give me up? And you can see the betrayal here in the text. David has just saved the city from the Philistines, and they're quick to give him up. In other words, uh, they're willing to take their chances with Saul and not lose all of their property and all of their homes just to give up David. But in the midst of this, what are we to take from this? Well, we see that David is seeking the will of the Lord. He is not seeking to live by his own wisdom, but to seek by the but to live by God's will for his people. And this is why God provides his word. He provides his word so that we will know his will. If you were a Christian back in the 1990s, um, which some of you were, and many of you were perhaps, there was a, a movement in, uh, in the 90s uh, called What Would Jesus Do? It was a, a quite uh, unbiblical movement, um, but, uh, but nonetheless. In other words, uh, the motivation behind this was to understand what is the will of God for my life. Uh, what should I do in this situation? Uh, should I buy the red car or the blue car? What would Jesus do? It reveals some of the foolishness of the whole question. But why it was so dangerous was because it unhitched, untethered the will of the Lord from the word of the Lord. It left you as the individual to pontificate on what Jesus might do in this particular situation Though God had not revealed in his word what Jesus would do in this particular situation. In other words, what it did was undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. It undermined the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. 
In other words, you don't need to look at clouds in the sky or meditate in your mind to think of what God's will is for your life. You can know that God has revealed His will for your life in His Word. The principles by which you are to live by. Now, you're not going to go through here and find a message written directly to you. Hey, Bill, you need to go and buy that blue car. Um, But you will find principles of wisdom and guidance to seek the will of the Lord through prayer and scripture reading. Well, this is what Paul's point is in 2 Timothy, is it not? A familiar passage to so many of us, 2 Timothy 3.16. You know John 3.16. Well, learn 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Well, what's it profitable for? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in God. And, excuse me, in training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, God's word is sufficient. His provision in His word is sufficient. For life's hardest questions. And to reprove us, to guide us, to direct us to the will of the Lord. God gives us His Word to conform us to His will. Do you know that is the aim of Bible reading? Sadly, many Christians read the Bible for Bible intake, not for Bible transformation. When you read your Bible, it is not merely to know that David is from Bethlehem and to have that for the next time your Sunday school teacher asks you that question, but rather to know the will of the Lord and to be conformed to that will. Brother and sister, I wonder how much time do you give to reading the Bible For transformation. Do you approach the scriptures so that your will is conformed to God's will? We pray that in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know the will of the Lord through His Word. As we journey through life following Christ, we must feast upon the Word made flesh, upon Christ and His great provision. Let us each week, each day, feast on the Lord's Word. I don't want to guilt you this morning and beat you up because you haven't been reading your Bible and you're, you know, months behind. You know what? Put all that away. Get over that and get over your guilt and just open the Bible and read it. Ask others for help reading your Bible. I would have no greater joy than to sit with you and to show you how to read your Bible well. Perhaps change your schedule so you can be here on Wednesday nights because every Wednesday night is a primer on how to read your Bible. Every week, I'm just reminding myself, this is how you read your Bible, Chris. This is how you read your Bible. I need that reminder and so do you. 
read, feast on the provision of the word of the Lord. Let's move quickly to the next two points. Secondly, the Lord provides his people. In verses 15 through 18, we are told that David is hiding out in the wilderness and and who comes and meets him but his best friend Jonathan. Jonathan is willing to look past all of the dangers that are before him. If his father gets word of this, he will be executed. But Jonathan comes out, he arose in verse 16 and went to David at Horesh. And notice what he does. Three things here that, that God provides to his people. First, he provides his people to reinforce us in God. Jonathan doesn't come and just shoot the breeze with David. Hey man, how's life out here in the wilderness? How's it going? Is my do- how's my dad doing? Have you seen him lately? No. He comes and, and reinforces him in God. See, there's a lot of reinforcement that I hear going on in church, but there's not a whole lot of reinforcement going on in God. In other words, we're so tempted to offer our experiences, our wise, worldly wisdom that we have gained through life. But how often do we reinforce one another with the word of the Lord? How often do you, when you're talking to a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, not tell them, hey, it's going to be okay, but flip over to Psalm 63 and tell them, God has revealed himself as our helper. Do you know you do that each week when you sing? See, we don't sing because we make a joyful noise to the Lord. Uh, We don't sing because we really like it, because maybe you don't like to sing. We sing because we're commanded to sing. And we're commanded in the Bible, in Colossians, to sing to one another. Why? Because I needed to hear today, because the enemy was attacking me this morning. Oh, he was, he was coming after me. I needed to hear, great is thy faithfulness. I needed to hear you telling me that God is faithful. I needed that this morning. And maybe you did too. Brothers and sisters, God provides His people to reinforce us in Himself. Not in the world and worldly wisdom, but in Him. We see also in the text in verse 17 that Jonathan comes and reminds us, reminds David, of who he is. He reminds David of who he is. Look at what he says in verse 17. And Jonathan said to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. Why? Because you're going to be the king. God promised it. It's who you are. It is signed, sealed, and delivered. No one can change that, not even my father. We need that reminder. Jonathan reminds David of who he is. He is the king. He need not fear what was coming. He will be king. He will ascend the throne. His father will be disposed of. Brothers and sisters, we need to remind one another of who we are in Christ. That we are children of the Most High God. 
It is not by any coincidence you sang this morning how deep the Father's love for us. You needed to hear this morning that you're a child and you have a Father who loves you. Now you may not have an earthly Father that ever loved you, but you have a heavenly Father who loves you. You need to be, you need to be told today and be, be reminded today that you have received every blessing in Jesus Christ. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual, excuse me, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You need to be reminded of what Peter tells us in 1 Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When you are overwhelmed with the discouragements of life, when you are ready to give up and quit, when you are in the wilderness of Ziff, you need to be reminded of who you are. That's theology. You need to know not only who God is, but who He created to be and who He purchased you to be. That's who you are. Nobody can change that. We also see here in the text, back in 1 Samuel, not only to be reinforced and reminded, but also renewed. Renewed. Look at verse 18. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horash, and Jonathan went home. They've already made a covenant. What are they making another one for? Well, they're just renewing the covenant they'd already made. A commitment to love one another. A commitment to die for one another. Jonathan has put his neck literally on the line for David. To encourage him, to strengthen him, and to renew his love. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that God has united us into a family Uh, He has united us into a congregation that's united uh, around this commitment to one another. To love one another. To encourage one another. Uh, Look, this is why we want to read that church covenant uh, monthly. To remind ourselves of our commitments to one another. Throughout the New Testament, again and again, there are those one another exhortations to love, to encourage, to strengthen In chapter 10 of Hebrews, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. In other words, endure to the end. You have a sufficient Savior 
Do not give up. So that's the, the, the command. Do not give up. Well, how is it that you do not give up? Well, he goes on. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Every Lord's Day is an opportunity for us to renew our commitment to one another, to move beyond the uh, custom, hi, hello, how are you, how's the weather, you think the Ravens are going to win, and get beyond that kind of uh, worldly stuff and get on to the day is drawing near, Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Like, it's rainy today. I mean, he could bust out any moment here. Are you ready? Every Lord's Day affords you the opportunity to encourage your brother and sister for that day. Because the clock is ticking, right? It's coming any day. More than that, we want to develop relationships that go beyond the Lord's Day, right? Oh, oh, the sweet day when we don't just see each other on the Lord's Day. But that we gather with one another throughout the week. Maybe it's through Wednesday night Bible study. Maybe it's through you just grabbing time with somebody throughout the week to encourage one another to reinforce them in God. Do you recognize the Lord's kind provision to you in other people? In the gifts of these brothers and sisters that He's given you? How imperfect sinners, they need Jesus just as much as you do, but He's given them How dare you turn away God's gift and say it's not good enough? Well, let's look third and finally, and I promise briefly, uh, the Lord provides himself. In verses 19 through 23, uh, or 29, we see David uh, on the run again. His time of refreshment and encouragement with his friend Jonathan is over. He must get on with it. And we're told here that David's own brothers, not his immediate brothers, but his own family, betrays him. The Ziphites here, we're told in verse 19, call up Saul on the phone and say, Saul, we want you to come down here. We're begging you to come down here and get David. Now, the Ziphites were were from the tribe of Judah. They were uh, within that tribe. that was the same tribe that David was from. So, so these are his kinsmen. These are his, this is his family. This is, these are folks that he would uh, see at family reunion time. He was a part, these, this tribe was a part of the, the thousands of Judah. And the Ziphites invite King Saul down to capture David. And the Lord provides himself in the, in the text. You, you may not see him there, but he's there. He'll come later as he delivers You know, so often when we read the Bible, we can miss the fact that the story is really about God. It's kind of like Esther. You might read through the book of Esther and think, I don't see God. Oh, he's there. You may not see him, but he's raising up that, that young queen, that young girl to be queen and to save his people. And in the midst of this, you see David on the run, betrayed and alone. Betrayed by his own family and alone. No one there. Yeah, he has his 600 guys with him, but, but he's alone. 
He doesn't deserve that. He's not done anything to deserve anything that is happening to him. David has at no point betrayed Saul. As David reflected on these events in his life, he wrote a psalm. If you have your Bibles, just turn briefly over to Psalm 54. Perhaps David wrote this as he was on the run. Or maybe he wrote it later in life as he reflected on these events. We don't know. Regardless, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these divine words in Psalm 54. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? How did David respond when he was betrayed and alone? He cried out to God, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer and give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Psalm David Psalm 54 is David's reflection on vengeance is the Lord. The Lord will deliver me. He will destroy my enemies. The Lord is my helper. In the text David reflects on his eternal security in the Lord. He knows that whatever comes against him that no one will be able to snatch him out of the Lord's hand. He knows that his soul is forever secure in the Lord. This is similar to Jonathan's encouragement to him when he reminded him who he was. Here he reflects on who he is and, that, and who the Lord is more importantly. And that the Lord is his helper. That he is his strength. And that he will be secure in his hand. Well back to 2 Samuel as we conclude. 1 Samuel, excuse me, verse 23. Chapter 23. In verses 24 through 29... We were told that David, in his situation, gets, goes from bad to worse. David is on a mountain. Saul is on the opposite side of the mountain. And Saul splits his troops in half and begins like a, a claw, like pinchers going around a, a mountain, begins to wrap Around the mountain, David is spiraling down this mountain, scurrying away. You can see like Indiana Jones running from that giant ball. He's just running. He's fleeing. He can't get away. He's stumbling along the way. He is in an impossible situation, surrounded on all sides. He is going to be caught. There is no question about it. The text makes so clear. Like a prey caught by his by a hunter, David is at... Just steps yet again away from wicked King Saul. But notice what happens. Verse 27, as Saul begins to close in on David, he is just moments away from capturing him. A messenger came to Saul. Hurry, 
Come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape, and David went up from there and lived in the stronghold of Engedi. Who aroused those Philistine troops? Who provoked them? Well, it was the Lord. The Lord even used his enemies to deliver his anointed one. David reflected on this time in Psalm 63 as we read earlier. That he was reminded as he reflected on this particular event that God alone is sovereign. That God alone is in control. And brothers and sisters, we need to take comfort in that fact. That regardless of how dark it is, how rainy it is, how miserable it is, God is still in control. Earlier, two weeks ago, the President of the United States was addressing a group of evangelical leaders in the White House. He was encouraging these evangelical leaders to go back to their churches and to stir up their congregation by using very provocative language. That if we lose this next election, these midterm elections, you're going to lose your religious freedoms and you're going to lose everything that you hold valuable. And regardless if you affirm that or not, I think there is perhaps truth to be found in much of what is said. But the reality is, the truth is, whoever's in the White House or whoever fills the seats in Congress, whoever the next Supreme Court justice is, whoever is the next councilman here in Catonsville or the next representative for us, one truth remains. God is still in control. He raises up kings and he disposes kings. He even uses wicked Philistines to save his anointed one. In our text, the Lord provides himself. We're reminded today that the greatest provision the Lord ever gave his people was the Lord Jesus Christ. The manna from heaven, the bread of life. The one who came to die for our sins and our iniquities. So that we could repent of our sins and trust in him that his death was for us. For our sins. Not for just the sins of our neighbors, but for our sins and for our iniquities he was crushed. So that all those who would repent of their sins and trust in him would be saved. And so today, if you're not a Christian... If you've been living your life apart from God's kind provisions, come and take this provision, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe upon Him and you will be saved. Trust in Him and you will find life's greatest treasure, the pearl of great price. I conclude this morning with the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians as a an illustration of persecution. An illustration of what life is like in a foreign land when nobody wants you to be around 
Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't give up. We don't quit. We don't become discouraged. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, Paul says, we're, we're disposable vessels to be used at the Lord's bidding for His purposes. There's nothing special about us. Nothing unique about us. We're just ordinary clay pots used for a season and then tossed away. But we have this treasure though in jars of clay that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Paul says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is our hope and joy. In the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, we look not to the things seen, the the provisions that we can touch and feel, but we feast on the provisions of the Lord's words to us. We come and we partake of God's people around us and find this kind provision of other brothers and sisters and we ultimately rest in the provision of Christ, our Savior. We are perplexed. We are driven to despair. But we do not give up hope. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray your word would speak, O Lord. Transform us. Only your word can do this. We are dependent on nothing else but your word. Speak, change for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.